Um, I am particularly excited uh, about this session. Uh, it's not that I don't care. I hope you sensed I cared about the other sessions, but there's something about this session that has gripped me for um, many years now. It's occupied my thinking, this idea of the functional centrality of the gospel. By the way, there's an outline. Uh, does anyone not have that? Um, so a few guys with hands up. There's outlines coming around. There is a part of me that is reluctant um, to say that this is uh, revolutionary. Um, because as I walk through this this afternoon, you're going to find, guys, there's nothing new here. There's nothing new. Um, but I can say that this has been remarkably fruitful for me remarkably clarifying for me pastorally. And so I think it can be revolutionary when this functional centrality of the gospel is intentionally applied and pursued in our lives and in our ministries, both as individuals and as churches. So I'm eager, especially in the context of this theme. Great work, greater word, to now talk in this last session about the functional centrality of the gospel. So let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. Father, we do humbly take you at your word and trust that you have grace for us in this next hour. And Lord, I pray that there would be in our hearts a quickness to humble ourselves under your mighty hand. Father, we want the posture of our hearts and of our minds to be submissive, yielding, happily, joyfully yielding to your word. And so, God, I pray that you would take this. Now, my words, I recognize where words are many, sin is not absent. And I've got to speak a lot of words in the next 45 minutes. So, God, I pray for your protection over my own heart. And I pray for your protection over every one of these men in this room. Um, God, do what only you can do. And that is to suit the truth of your word to particular needs. So you know where every one of these guys is and what is needed. And so, God, I, I, I pray you take this and put it to use for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so several years ago, um, I received an invitation to participate in a pastor's colloquium. It was a gathering of pastors from around the country. It was held at Trinity Seminary, and it was convened by Dr. Don Carson and Tim Keller. It has since become, as you know, the Gospel Coalition. But prior to that first meeting, each one of us who was invited was asked to submit, along with our resumes, an answer to this question. What is the greatest and most crying need in the church today? And so here's what I wrote. What is the greatest and most crying need in the church today? Not just a biblical theological literacy, but a functioning biblical and theological literacy, especially a functioning gospel. I went on to say I believe a local church is healthy to the degree that, number one, its pastor teachers are able 
accurately, effectively, and broadly to bring the gospel to bear specifically into the real lives of the people, and two, its people have a deep personal understanding of and a deep personal appreciation for the gospel so as to be able to live in the good of the gospel daily. One of the greatest challenges, and yet one of the most important tasks of pastoral ministry, is to help people actually see the connections between the gospel and the thinking and behavior that make up their everyday lives. We know well the centrality of the gospel message, but in order for it to have a functional centrality, it must be clearly, and I say clearly because there is so much possibility for fuzziness or vagueness, and carefully, and I say carefully because there are dangers like all around, and consistently, and I say consistently because there is a tendency to drift in every one of us, and so we need to clearly, carefully, consistently connect the gospel to the real issues, issues of thought and issues of conduct of people's lives. This kind of ministry is most greatly needed. So that was my response. Now, let me be completely straightforward. I don't know what the greatest need of the church is. I'll leave that to brighter mind. Actually, I do know what the greatest need is. It's Jesus. Um, he is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the way and the truth and the life. It's Jesus. He's the head of the church. And the gospel, please don't make this mistake of driving a wedge between that word gospel and the person of Jesus. The gospel is the Bible's way of referring to the person and work of Jesus. It's biblical shorthand for the good news that is Jesus. And we need that. We need the word of the gospel. We need the truth of the gospel. We need the goodness of the gospel. There's a very great need for that in the local church. In my local church, I suspect in your local church. And I know that not as a result of engaging in some exercise in abstraction, but as a personally and regularly observed need in my own life, in the life of the people that I minister to. There really is a great need for this in people's lives, a need for the gospel to function for it to do work for them. I heard someone say not too long ago, all of our problems come from a failure to apply the gospel. And so the gospel is what is needed, and the gospel is capable of doing work. It's not as if we're asking the gospel to do something that it's not capable of. Think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is... The power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, because in it a righteousness from God is revealed. And once the gospel has done its regenerating work, which is what Paul's talking about in Romans 1.16, it, the gospel, continues to be the instrument of our growth and our spiritual progress. Just listen to how Paul says it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. All over the world... 
this gospel is bearing fruit, notice how Paul says this, and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all of its truth. In other words, Paul is saying the gospel had its initial effect in your lives, and guess what? It's now continuing to bear fruit and grow from that day in you and all over the world. So it's this functioning, this working of the gospel in the life of the believer, in the life of the local church that I want us to talk about this afternoon. I'm going to proceed in two basic sections here. First, I want us to look at a biblical paradigm for the functional centrality of the gospel. It's the main thing I want to communicate in this session. And, and what I want you to see during the course of this is that it is a biblical paradigm. I'm not just making this up. This is, in fact, a biblical paradigm that the gospel is intended to function in the life of the believer. And then, having looked at that, second, I want to just offer some practical pastoral suggestions as to what this might look like in your ministry. So implications and opportunities, just a few suggestions. I'm not going to try to be exhaustive there. It's just meant to be suggestive. I'm going to paint in very broad stroke. I'll try to give a few examples just because I want to be helpful. So secondly, implications and opportunities. But first, Roman numeral one, the functional centrality of the gospel, a biblical paradigm. Now, the way that I've conceived this is with three concentric circles. So imagine, I guess you don't have to imagine, it's there on your sheet, a picture of three concentric circles. And in the center circle is the gospel itself. In fact, you might want to just write that word in that center circle, just write the gospel. And we can think of this for now, and I stress that for now, as the essential or theological centrality of the gospel. And we can see this in several explicit statements in Scripture, perhaps most notably in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. I'm sure you're familiar with this, but let me read it again. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And he goes on to talk about the burial, the resurrection, the post-resurrection appearances. But I think what we have there in verse 3 is this wonderfully succinct summary of the heart of the gospel. Now, I'm using my words carefully here. There's a lot of conversation about what, what exactly is the gospel. I want to suggest to you that what we have in 1 Corinthians 15.3 is a wonderful summary of the heart of the gospel. And it's in those five words, Christ died for our sins. Now, what I just did with my hand right there, I did on purpose. Christ died for our sins. When I was a little boy, maybe six or seven years old, on a Sunday morning after Sunday school, you know what six-year-old boys are like, right? And it was a hard time for me to sit there for that long. And when we were done, I scampered out of the room and I heard my teacher call my name. Mike, I turned around and I saw her go like this. Come here. And you know, your heart just sinks. Like I thought I was free. And I went back and she said, hold out your hand. And I held out my hand and she did this. I 
will never leave you. And she looked at me and she said, that's a promise from God, and you can take that with you wherever you go. And I've never forgotten that. So I want to give that to you, except I'm going to ask you to put it in your other hand so that you can free this one up for the heart of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. So we teach our kids at Crossway, and they add a little yippee at the end. Christ died for our sins. That statement, that speaks of all of the necessary elements. It speaks of the reality of our sin. Christ died for our sins. It speaks of the necessity of divine punishment. Someone died for those sins, but it also speaks of the wonderful provision of salvation from divine wrath through Christ because it wasn't me who died for my sins. Christ died for my sins. This is the heart of the gospel, but the point that I want you to pick up from 1 Corinthians 15.3 is that Paul speaks of this gospel as the matter of, did you hear it? First importance. First importance. There is a theological priority, a theological centrality given to this message. And we know well of the priority given to that message in Paul's preaching and Paul's writing. He writes to the Corinthians, I resolved to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Christ died for your sins. Or what he says in Galatians chapter 6, I will boast in nothing except what? The cross of Christ. And so we have these clear, explicit statements about the priority, the centrality of the gospel message. And then on top of those kinds of statements, you have these other explicit biblical statements that speak of the gospel as, I mean, just listen to this, the power of God, Romans 1.16. Speaks of the gospel as the blessing of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It speaks of the gospel as the light of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I mean, the gospel is described in the Bible with the most amazing terms. So there is this explicit giving of priority, theological priority to the gospel. So that's the first circle, the gospel itself. It's central. But now, in order for that gospel to have a functional centrality, a functioning centrality in our lives, Connections must be made. Connections between the gospel and the areas where people live their lives. The gospel needs to be connected to areas of thought. Not just areas of thought, but patterns of thought. In fact, deep structures of thought. The gospel needs to be connected to areas of conduct, patterns of conduct, structures of conduct. The gospel needs to be connected to, applied to every area of our thinking, our feeling, our relating, our behavior, everything. And it's those connections that make the gospel function. This is how the gospel wields its influence. This is where the gospel bears its fruit. And so this introduces the second and the third of our circle. So let's go now to that second circle. 
Maybe go back to that drawing. This is the closest, most immediate connections with the gospel, what we might call the doctrinal implications of the gospel, or shorthand, what I like to call gospel truths. So in that second circle, just write gospel truths. Now notice it's plural. This is not gospel truth. It's gospel truths. These are doctrinal implications of the gospel. These are things that grow specifically out of the gospel. In fact, in your drawing there, you might want to draw little arrows emanating from that center circle to that second circle. These things are the result of. They're implications of the gospel. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul recognizes this category and he speaks about doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel. You see the connection? In other words, that second circle, if you follow me here, that second circle is a circle because the first one is a circle. That second group gets its shape from the shape of the gospel. It's not just that there's gospel truth, the truth of the gospel here, and over here there's some other things that happen to be true. No, that second circle of things are true because the gospel is true. They grow out of the gospel. So what Paul said to Timothy is just another way of saying the same thing. Doctrine, the shape of which, the substance of which, is determined by the substance of the gospel. So let's, let's talk for a moment here about this idea of gospel-shaped doctrine. This is doctrine, truth, that is not just also true. True in addition to the gospel. It's not just somehow useful, profitable things that we find elsewhere in Scripture. No, it's content. I want to stress this. It's content is what it is because of the content of the gospel. It grows out of the gospel. And here's the point now. These gospel truths bring the gospel to bear, they cause the gospel to function in areas of lived experience, particularly in your mind. In other words, they are useful in renewing the mind so that our thinking, the content of our thinking, the patterns of our thinking, the structures of our thinking, I mean, just stop and think about how much of your life you live right up here. It's amazing. Your hopes, your dreams, your fears, your desires, all of that. And it's going to be more and more actually shaped by the truth of the gospel. I believe that's what Paul is saying, actually, in Romans chapter 15, verse 13, when he says, listen to this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. What's the next phrase? In believing. In other words, by believing certain things, that's actually going to wield its influence in your life. And you're going to be a person marked by joy and peace and hope. The gospel will function for you in producing these very real things. So let's look at some examples of gospel truths. Uh, as you might expect, the book of Romans is particularly rich in these gospel truths. So let's consider... For example, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. I suspect it's familiar, but I want you to pay particular attention to the logic 
which is indicative of the connections. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, now here's the implication, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Please notice the logic of the verse. In fact, Paul stresses the logic. Therefore, since, in other words, something else is true because of the gospel. Something follows from the gospel. What is it? We are now at peace with God. That truth flows out of the reality of our justification. And that gospel truth, think about this, that you are at peace with God, when that truth is grasped, I mean thoroughly grasped, through and through by somebody, that's going to go a really long way in relieving their thinking, in helping the gospel to function in how a person thinks about their fundamental status and their fundamental safety and their fundamental security in a universe where you can feel shaken at times. Um, no matter what happens, the Twin Towers might come down. Um, your child may be diagnosed with a terminal illness. Your spouse may die. And this verse says, no matter what happens, your fundamental relationship in this world is safe. You are at peace with God. I tell you, that will be a revolutionary reality for people. The gospel functioning in a way that they are thinking and orienting themselves in the world. Or I think about Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Again, please notice the logic that Paul stresses. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Once again, Paul is standing with his feet firmly in that center circle. And he's now sharing a gospel truth, a doctrinal implication of the gospel. And the implication is absolutely stunning. No condemnation. And when that truth, again, please think about this. When that truth is fully comprehended by a believer, it will revolutionize their mental world. And the gospel will function power, powerfully for them. Because without the gospel, I mean, in the face of your ongoing sin, you got two options. You're going to be tempted to either self-achievement, got to make up for it, or you're going to be tempted to despair. But when the grace of God in the gospel is the functioning standard of our thinking with reference to how God now views my sin, oh, how liberating. That is, it's not that God doesn't deal with our sin. You know this. It's just that he no longer deals with our sin according to our sin. He deals with our sin according to his love, which is very different. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 32. This is one of my favorites. He who did not spare his own son. What do you hear right there? Christ died for our sins. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up 
for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You see those words, also, and with him, they speak of something that comes along with, that grows out of the gospel. And so Romans 8.32 is really presenting one of these wonderful gospel truths and implication of the gospel, which is true because of the gospel. And when you make that connection for people, when they see this promise of God's gracious provision of all things for them. Now, it's not talking about a summer cottage on the lake. It's talking about all things necessary for life and godliness. But he'll provide that. How will he not graciously give us everything that we need? Then the gospel will be functioning for them by strengthening their daily trust in him to provide everything they need. You see, independent of the gospel, these promises will come out of your mouth, pastor, and they're going to fall to the ground. They won't stick anywhere. But if you make the connection with the gospel, there's now something that gives great foundation and great power to these amazing statements in our Bibles. So let me use an image uh, here that I picked up from a book I read some time ago. Just think, think of a huge flywheel. Those of you who are familiar with kind of heavy machinery, or now I, I know it's used very much in, in kind of high-tech circles, these enormous heavy flywheels. And um, it takes a while to get them going. But once you get a flywheel going and you attach something else to it by some sort of axle, that flywheel and its momentum now gives its momentum to whatever you attach to it. That's the purpose of a flywheel. So that flywheel is the gospel. Sometimes it takes a little while in your church to get it going. But once it gets going... Once you get the gospel itself going, it has the power to carry with it an incredible load. Power to get things done as you, pastor, minister of the word, rightly attach other things to it. You're not making this stuff up. It's one of the things I've tried to show you here. This is a biblical paradigm. These are, these are not just brain-spun connections. These are connections we're seeing in God's word. So if in your church the gospel is central and it's clear, if it has momentum by seeing these connections which are real, the gospel now gives its momentum to those truths which are very close to where people live their lives in their thinking and in their believing and in their hoping and thus the gospel will function for them. There is beyond the shaping of our thinking by these doctrinal implications, another level of connections that link the gospel to our behavior. So this is the third circle. Go back to the first page there and see that third circle, and it's what we call the behavioral implications of the gospel, what I like to call gospel conduct. So we've got the gospel, we've got gospel truths, we've got gospel conduct, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, 
Paul tells the Philippian believers, remember this? He says, conduct yourselves, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. You hear that? He's speaking about gospel-shaped conduct. And you also have that very interesting episode that's recounted in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul um, confronts Peter. Remember this moment? Um, He confronts Peter and his friends for their conduct that was not, remember what Paul says, in line with the truth of the gospel. So again, we have this idea of of gospel-shaped something, gospel-shaped conduct, conduct that grows out of the specific content of the gospel. It's a direct effect of the gospel. In other words, one of the ways that the gospel functions and it's meant to function is by specifically informing behavior. And I stress that word specifically. It's not a place for us to be content with vagueness. Very specific connections are made. And we as Christians, and I think especially as pastors, we need to be reading our Bibles with a special eye to detecting the connections that it makes between the gospel and specific behavior. So again, let's look at some examples. When in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul appeals to the Corinthians to, here's what he says, flee from sexual immorality. That's a behavior, right? It's a conduct. Notice the specific and explicit connection he makes to the gospel. Because he wants the gospel to function as it should. So he doesn't, he doesn't just engage in moralism. He doesn't just say, hey, behave yourselves sexually. No, he reminds them of the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. You were bought at a price. You belong to God. Now here's the connection. So glorify God with your body. See, he attaches this this little behavioral exhortation to the already moving flywheel of the gospel. Remember, he preached that gospel in Corinth. And so now he is able to come and say, I want to attach something to that. That has to do with how you're living your lives. And by so doing, he gives momentum, gospel momentum, to sexual purity. As opposed to trying to take this little moral exhortation and attach it to nothing. I mean, you know how long that's going to last, right? In the face of sexual temptation? How long some moralism is going to last? You try to attach this exhortation to nothing, and it's going to be like a little post-it note falling to the ground. But if it is connected to the gospel, firmly linked, the gospel now functions to carry something that is very glorifying to God. That's just one example. See the same kind of thing in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Paul tells us, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. But he doesn't just stop there. What does he do? Explicit connection to the gospel. As God in Christ forgave you. You see, both the model and the motivation for our conduct of forgiveness 
is the gospel. Or I think about Paul's instructions to husbands. Ephesians 5, 25, regarding their conduct. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And here it is, gave himself up for her. And right there at the end of Ephesians 5.25, you have this wonderful statement of the gospel, and its purpose is to give content and motive power and momentum to our behavior as husbands. I just want you to see this happening in Scripture. Let me do one more here. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Here Paul is calling the Corinthian church to an ongoing generosity, And at several points in those two chapters, he explicitly reminds them of God's generosity to them in the gospel. So he links this behavior that he's calling for to the gospel so that the gospel will be the thing that functions to bring about their generosity. What does he say? See that you excel in this act of grace also for, please notice this, here's the connection, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. The gospel functioning as it should to motivate our generosity. Now, many, many more examples could be given. The gospel has something to say about racism. The gospel has something to say about suffering. The gospel has something to say about self-control. The gospel has something to say about worship. The gospel is something to say about caring for the poor. Ultimately, all Christian behavior should flow out of the gospel. But it's in you seeing and then helping other people see the connections, the specific line of connections, the logic of the gospel, if you will, that really causes the gospel to function. That's what taps into the momentum and the power of the big gospel flyer. I think it's a significant part of your job as a pastor. In fact, I think it's a significant part of your life as a Christian uh, to be making these connections. Clearly, carefully, consistently, I think this almost defines maturity as a believer. Seeing these connections, having a skill in making these connections. And when you do this, you are not just, you're not just leveraging the logic of the gospel. You are harnessing the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, there's the paradigm. I believe, as I've said already today, I believe it's a biblical paradigm. I've tried to show that. These are not just truths and exhortations independent that I've put together. These are things that the Bible has put together and calls us to see. So it's not just the centrality of the gospel, but the functioning centrality of the gospel that is a biblical paradigm. That's the concept that I want you to see this afternoon, and I I want you to see it as a paradigm for pastoral ministry. But I thought it might be helpful to at least begin to think about some implications, some opportunities. So Roman numeral two, the functional centrality of the gospel, implications and opportunities. Let me just suggest three particular places that this vision, this understanding can be and should be leveraged. Three places within which I believe you need to be clearly and carefully and consistently 
showing the connections between the gospel and the thinking and the living of your people. And then I'm going to add just a gentle word of warning at the end. So first, number one, and this just must not be an unstated assumption. The first place these connections need to be made is in your own life. Paul's words to Timothy, set an example for the believers applies to everything. Certainly applies to this. So the question is, is there a functioning of the gospel in your life? Do you have a deep, personal understanding of the gospel? Every one of those words matters. Do you have a deep, personal appreciation for the gospel? Are you making the connections and living in the good of the gospel daily? Listen, pastoral leadership is is about influence. Uh, And there is no greater influence than your life. Um, At one point, you've probably heard this, Robert Murray McChain said, the best thing I can give my people is my own personal holiness. In the same vein, I would say the best thing you can do for your people is to believe and live the gospel. And I believe God will use that. What is happening in your life for the good of your people, totally apart from your formal ministry, but it will also add credibility and weight and effectiveness and attractiveness to your formal ministry. So the question here is, are you purposefully growing? Are you purposefully expanding, purposefully deepening in your comprehension of the gospel? Is the gospel design being filled out so that it's not just circles on a page, it's being filled out in all of its detail and connection in your life? Are you faithfully reading God's word with that end in mind? Are you reading things that sharpen your mind and stir your heart to help you see how to apply the gospel. But then are you also growing in your actual living out of the gospel? In other words, do others see it embodied in your life? Do they see the gospel? For me, one of the most important parenting questions I've asked is, are my children able to observe in their father the functioning of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Does my wife experience it? Do the guys on my team at Crossway experience it? Do the people of the church see it? I mean, it's hard for me to imagine something more helpful to people, and this would apply to parenting, to marriage, to to relationships, certainly applies to ministry. It's hard for me to imagine something more helpful to people than to see the gospel functioning in someone's life so that they can say, Uh, It's not just doctrinal teaching. They can see it live and they can say it's not just words. Listen, if nothing else happens, if you don't apply any of the rest of the things I'm about to talk about, this one, this one will bear much fruit in your pastoral ministry. Number two, I suppose this is the obvious one. Second place that these connections need to be made is in your regular ministry of the word, your regular preaching and teaching. And I'm thinking first and foremost here of your typical Sunday morning teaching. Certainly foundational to that is explicit gospel 
preaching. I trust that it's clear when I say gospel preaching here, I'm not speaking right now about evangelism, that kind of preaching of the gospel to unbelievers. I'm talking here about preaching the gospel for Christians. The gospel flywheel needs to be regularly kept in motion for Christians through your preaching because we forget, right? Listen to Jerry Bridges, who I think puts this ever so well. This is from his book called uh, The Discipline of Grace. He writes this, The gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, it is the only essential message in all of history, and yet we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experiencing the joy of living by it. You just don't want that happening in your church. Christians not living in the good of the gospel. So he goes on and he says, I believe part of the problem is our tendency to give an unbeliever just enough of the gospel to get him or her to pray a prayer to receive Christ, and then we immediately put the gospel on the shelf, so to speak, and we go on to the duties of discipleship. And as a result, Christians are not instructed in the gospel, and because they do not fully understand the riches and the glory of the gospel, they cannot live by it in their daily lives. I try to make it a point in every Sunday message that the gospel is present. And I'm not thinking primarily evangelistically. I'm thinking primarily of making sure the gospel gets kept going in the lives and hearts of believers. Obviously, people who are unsaved and they're there, they need to hear it. But the people who are saved need to hear it as well. Remember the old hymn? Uh, I love to tell the story. For those who know it best seem hungry and thirsty to hear it like the rest. So foundational to your task is an explicit reminding of the gospel. Luther once said, every week I preach the good news of justification by faith because every week we forget. Spurgeon weighed in and he said, I fear my people grow tired of me hammering the same nail every week, but hammer I will. But then also, in your regular preaching and teaching, a good part of this should be made up of making these connections for people. Showing these connections between the gospel and their lives. Making intelligent gospel connections for people between the gospel and how they think, between the gospel and how they live. So, for example, some time back we did a three-week series uh, entitled Ending Well, Living and Dying to the Glory of God. Three sermons. The first sermon was entitled The Last Two Decades, Retiring to the Glory of God. The second sermon was entitled The Last Two Years, Aging to the Glory of God. And the third sermon was entitled The Last Two Weeks, Dying to the glory of God. And in that last sermon, how could I not seize the opportunity to make a powerful gospel connection for people right out of Hebrews chapter 2, where the writer says, speaking of Christ, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And you see the opportunity right there to make a connection. Do you see how showing that connection and preaching that connection 
is going to cause the gospel to function with reference to a very specific pattern of thinking that many of your people have, and it's called fear of death. My point is that in making that connection, it's a big part, it's a major part of what you're preaching should be made up of. Now, can I just encourage you? You will get better at this, but not automatically. You'll get better as you increasingly familiarize yourself with the lexicon of the gospel in the Bible. It's going to help you see things as you become more and more familiar with the biblical language that gathers around the gospel. Freedom and slavery, guilt and pardon, enmity and reconciliation, life and death, redemption. I mean, the Bible is a wonderfully vivid, wonderfully varied in its terminology. The more we understand the language of the Bible, the language of the gospel in the Bible, the more points of contact we'll be able to see and make for people. And that will show up in the third place that I want to point you to, and that's making gospel connections in your direct pastoral care and counsel with people. You know this. If you've been in pastoral ministry for more than like a month, you know this. Uh, your ministering of the gospel in all of its connections faithfully will invariably draw you into direct pastoral care. And that's all right. It's the way it should be. One ministry creates another ministry, and you simply can't get everything done from the pulpit. And so if you are ministering faithfully, you will find yourself engaged with people after the meeting, later that week when they email you. And you must see that as an extension of your ministry of the Word. You must seize that as an opportunity to continue to help the gospel to function for people. You know, in my pastoral ministry, I am finding that so much of people's spiritual struggles, so much of their discouragement is actually due to a failure to make these connections. Remember that statement I made earlier? All of our problems come from a failure to apply the gospel. So what might this look like? Let me just illustrate with one example. Not very long ago, I had preached a sermon on the topic of forgiveness, and I found myself soon after that message in a conversation with a young wife whose husband had sinned, grievously sinned against her, and she was, as you could understand, having a hard time forgiving him. And she said to me at one point in our conversation, she said these words, I'll only forgive him if he promises never to do that again. I could understand, right? But I didn't rush. I just listened and I waited. But at the right time, I said to her, what would happen if God had dealt with you in that way? If God held you to that standard, I'll only forgive you if you promise to never sin again. In other words, I reminded her of the goodness, I mean the radical goodness of the gospel. And connecting this issue in her life to the gospel was the thing that broke the logjam of resistance in her heart. I, I saw it break. 
right before my eyes. I saw the tears. I saw the look of recognition. The gospel functioned with reference to a very particular thing in her life. Guys, I want to tell you, that was not my pastoral insight. That was not my pastoral brilliance. It was the effect of the gospel in her life. Listen, a big part of pastoral counseling, godly counsel and care, is helping people see and believe gospel truths, and it affects gospel conduct. Now, a gentle word of warning. If this idea has any merit, if you find yourself hearing what I've said for the last 40 minutes and thinking, think that's true, and you begin to allow it to shape your thinking in pastoral ministry, you're going to find yourself using phrases like the functional centrality of the gospel, or bringing the gospel to bear on a situation, or making gospel connections. This will, will kind of become some parlance that you will use because you're excited about the idea Uh, At one point, G.K. Chesterton said, there is nothing so deadening to the divine as an habitual dealing with the outsides of holy things. Same true here. Um, There's nothing so deadening to the functional centrality of the gospel than an habitual dealing with the outsides. Just speaking the language, using the terms. So let's, let's be patient. It takes a while for the penny to drop. For people, let's be careful in our language. What I'm saying is that our thinking and our speaking and our ministering needs to be clear and careful and consistent. And it is, as it is, the gospel will exert its influence in a ever-broadening way through the ministry of the church. Now, let me try to wrap this up. Some time ago, I was reading about a group of men. They were a group of uh, explorer scientists who had dedicated themselves to the exploration and the mapping of the, the vast stretches of desert in North Africa. Um, technically, their training was in, check this out, sand dune morphology. Sounds fascinating, right? But by passion... They loved the topography and the cartography, the mapping of that desert. And I remember reading one of these guys describing how after years of study, now please notice parallels that I'm trying to draw here. After years of study, research, reading ancient books, going on expeditions, how after all of that they carried in their minds maps. And all it would take would be some offhand comment that they overheard in the streets of Cairo about the name of some small ridge. And this guy says, and in his mind, a map of the whole of North Africa would slide into place. That's what the gospel should increasingly be like for us as pastors. We should have a richly detailed gospel map. And then more recently, 
someone shared with me from a book called The Shadow Divers. There's a section about a particular diver, a Mr. Nagel. He was the explorer of deep sea wrecks, and he had a particular passion for the wreck of the ship, the uh, Andrea Doria. Let me just read a little section from this book for you. Had the Doria only her riches to offer, she could not have romanced Nagel so hopelessly. The ship's real challenge lay in exploration. The wreck rested on its side, making navigation dangerous and deceptive. A diver had to conceive the world sideways to make sense of doors on the floor and ceilings to the right. And she was deep, 180 feet at her shallowest and 250 feet where she crushed the ocean floor. Men sometimes got disoriented or ran out of air or lost their minds from narcosis. The wreck was so deep and dark and dangerous that decades after her sinking, entire decks remained unexplored. Those decks were Nagel's destination. Over time, Nagel penetrated the wreck in places long relegated to the impossible. He, his mantle at home became a miniature Doria Museum. Soon he set his sights on the bell. A ship's bell is her crown, her voice. For a diver, there's no greater prize, and many of the greats go a career without coming close to recovering one. Nagel decided to own the Doria's bell. People thought he was nuts. Scores of divers had searched for 30 years for the Doria's bell. No one believed it was there. Now listen, Nagel went to work. Again, I'm trying to draw parallels here. Nagel went to work. He studied deck plans. He studied books of photographs, crew diaries. Then he did what few other divers did. He formulated a plan. He would need days, maybe even a week, to pull it off. No charter boat, however, was going to take a diver to the Doria for a week. So Nagel, who had saved a good bit of money, decided to buy a dive boat for himself, a vessel constructed from his imagination for a single purpose, to salvage the Doria's bell. In 1985, Nagel recruited five top divers, men who shared his passion for exploration, and he made this arrangement. He would take the group to the Doria at his expense. The trip would be a dedicated one, meaning the divers went with just one objective, to recover the bell. For the first few days on the wreck, the divers stuck to Nagel's plan. They found nothing. The bell just wasn't there. At that point, even the hardiest divers would have turned back. A single day on the open Atlantic in a 65-foot boat will turn intestines inside out. Nagel and his cohorts had been out for four days in a 35-foot glorified bathtub. Now, here's the sentence that captured my attention. But a man is not so inclined to give up when he sees in panorama. First time I shared that illustration, someone came running up to me after the message and said, did he get the bell? And so I've learned to diffuse that question in your mind. He got the bell. Here's what I want you to get. Um, when you feel like the person that you're ministering to is like 180 feet underwater and laying on their side, and you feel somewhat disoriented in your pastoral ministry, like you might be losing your mind from pastoral narcosis, it is the panoramic view of the gospel that will keep you going. And so what I am 
calling you to is this, this kind of understanding of the gospel. There isn't something like that kind of vision in your ministry. If there isn't this map-like panoramic vision of the gospel to steady you, I think there's going to be an inclination to quit at times. But a man is not so inclined to give up when he sees in panoramas. So what I'm suggesting is this map-like vision in all of its connection being increasingly filled out, increasingly functioning in your pastoral ministry, and that's what's going to enable you to bring the gospel to bear for the good of your people and ultimately for the strengthening of Christ's church to his glory.